Hello, everyone, and welcome to Myth, Heresies, and Hearsay, Episode 15, Craziest Stories in the Bible, Volume 2, No Holds Barred. I have mentioned I was in my mid-30s before I actually read the Bible cover to cover. This actually makes me think of my dad, who began reading the Bible about five years before he passed. When he started this journey, he came to me and told me how shocked he was by the whole thing. I think the reason he hadn't read the Bible was because he thought it was stories about these good-goody people who only did good things for God, and there was stories about how they served God. Not so, he found out. Shocked to find out not only murder, but sex and intrigue and adultery and incest, and of course the brutality of the times. He told me as he was reading, he was surprised to realize that David was an evil king. And that is not how history has seen him. So what did David do between the time he killed a giant with his slingshot and the time he became the greatest king in Israelite history? With David's army away, fighting, David became a little bored. On his rooftop, he looked down and saw this beautiful young woman bathing. She must have been quite the hottie because David sent for her and took her. The bigger problem here was that this girl was married, and not only married, but married to one of his best and loyal fighters, Uriah, one of his mighty men. The plot thickens when this girl, Bathsheba, sends message to David she is pregnant. What to do? So David sends for Uriah under the guise of status report and tells him since he is home he should go spend the night with his wife obviously so it would seem that the baby born would be Uriah's and thus covering up the whole thing. Uriah however is so honorable tells David that he will not spend the night with his wife until all the comrades can come home and do the same. David insisted and again, Uriah refuses. So what does David do? He's in a pickle. So he sends Uriah back to the war with a message to the commander whose name was Joab. Little does Uriah know that he is carrying his own death warrant. He knows Uriah, so honorable, wouldn't read the message. That instructs Joab to pull back from Uriah in the heat of battle and allow Uriah to be killed. This story is in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. When David gets the message of his army's defeat, it included the note that his mighty man, Uriah, had also been killed. After this, he, David, sends for Bathsheba, and marries her. Problem solved, right? Except it's not. The truth always comes out, and David is outed by the prophet Nathan in public. 
quite the gutsy thing to do in those days when ancient kings hold everyone's lives in their hands. But it seems Nathan answered to a higher force. But to David's credit, he did not react with vengeance, but with humility and admission of guilt. This was David's saving grace. Far from a perfect person, and if the writers of the story had wanted the patriarchs and central characters to seem perfect and better than everyone else, this story would have definitely been omitted. I appreciate that the writers did not pull any punches. Another example is the story of Judah, who was Jacob's fourth son and Judah's daughter-in-law. In those days, they had a rather strange custom that if a man died childless, with his wife still of childbearing age, one of his brothers would copulate with her so the deceased man's line would not end. Very strange to our sensibilities, but in an age where every woman was expected to produce offspring and was considered a failure and even shunned or ridiculed if she didn't, this was a very important way for a woman to do just that. So it seems that Judah's oldest son was a jerk and got himself into an early grave. So Judah, doing as the custom, gave his second son so that his daughter-in-law, whose name was Tamar, could produce a son as an heir to the deceased man. Turns out son number two must have been a bit of a jerk as well. He was all good with the extra action that his sister-in-law could provide, but wasn't so keen on producing a son for a dead brother, and pulled out and spewed his seed on the ground, as about as PG as I can say it. So God killed this guy off as well. Doesn't say how. So Tamar is well within her right to expect the third son to perform this duty. By this time, though, Judah is not so keen on the idea. I mean, after all, he's already lost two sons with this woman. I mean, what is she anyway, some kind of black widow or something? So he tells Tamar that his third son is not yet of age to perform the duty and tells her to wait. And so she does, for some time. But when the young man is of age, she realizes that Judah is slow playing her. She, with her biological clock ticking, comes up with a bold, very bold plan. By this time, Judah's wife has passed away, so Tamar disguises herself and poses as a prostitute. I did say bold, remember? Judah sees the girl and must have been thinking, hmm, it's been a while. I could go for some of that. This is in Genesis 38, just in case you think I'm making this up. So Tamar poses as this prostitute, asks Judah, What can you give me? Judah, with no cash on hand and must have left his debit card at home, says, I can give you a sheep. 
And that's a pretty good deal for both parties. But the herd was out in the field, so how could she know that he would pay? She tells him, all right, but give me a promise of payment article. Judah asks, like what? She replies, give me your staff and bring me the sheep tomorrow. The deal was made and the deed was done. So Judah, being a man of his word, shows up the next day with the payment and finds no prostitute. And no one there knows of any that worked that area. So a little befuddled, Judah goes home and forgets the incident. A couple of months later, Judah gets word that his daughter-in-law is pregnant. Having no husband must have prostituted herself. The law was clear in those days. That being a capital offense, the method of execution was stoning. I know, seems pretty harsh. So Judah arrives on the scene with a crowd of screaming villagers, rocks in hand, all ready to let loose. As they cannot carry out the sentence without the clan leader, that of course being Judah, I'm sure Judah, as he was approaching, grabs a baseball-sized rock of his own. But first they demand to know who is this evil SOB who is the father. Tamar answers by taking out a staff that Judah had given her a couple months earlier as promise of payment. You can almost imagine the look in Judah's eyes as he realizes, hey, that's my staff. And the sound of rocks dropping out of people's hands as he put this all together in his mind. Here too, as in David's case, Judah humbles himself and realizes that he is the one at fault here. He endeavors to make things right and brings Tamar into his house to have their baby. The text also says that Judah had no further physical relations with her. Now, do you believe that? Well, the text has already outed him as a whoremonger lusting after the services of prostitutes. I am pretty sure if he had continued having sex with her or was living as man and wife after that, the text would have said just that. As we have seen, the book does not pull any punches, and this is another story that would have been omitted otherwise. I'll try to line up this third story with our narrative. I chose it, frankly, for no particular reason other than it isn't very well known and it is fascinatingly brutal. Jacob had 12 sons. He also had a daughter, and her name was Dinah. This is in Genesis 34, for those keeping score. Jacob had settled his family in the land of the Hivites. Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite prince, saw Dinah and was smitten with her. He wanted her, so he did what they generally did in ancient times. He took her. But before Jacob's family could react with anger at the rape, Shechem and his father and some nobles came by. It seems Shechem really wanted to marry Dinah. 
They proposed the marriage with the intention of uniting with Jacob's people that they would become one people. Seems like a sincere offer. But two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, interjected and said, No, we couldn't do that. All of our men are circumcised. It's a matter of our identity. The Hivite prince, Hamar, was willing to have all the men in the town circumcised to make this happen. So, happy resolution, happy ending, right? Uh, no, not at all. On the day that all of the men in the town got circumcised, Simeon and Levi entered the town with all of the men still recovering from a painful procedure and slaughtered them all. So I'm guessing the wedding is off. No need to send out those invites. Jacob was furious with his sons that they had to leave for fear that the Hivites would retaliate. He speaks of this on his deathbed in Genesis 49, where he gathers his sons. He blesses and prophesies what will befall his sons. Simeon and Levi were son number two and son number three. Although they are not disinherited, he has nothing nice to say in these blessings. Son number one, although not a bad person, is also disqualified as the heir to Jacob. As it seems, he slept with Jacob's concubine, apparently in Jacob's own bed. So, son number one and son number two and son number three, not qualified to be heir and king. So where does it fall to? Well, to son number four, of course. And who is that? But, wait for it, Judah. Sordid story and all. The common theme with these stories are that we are seeing human beings, not great mythological statues that only did great things. Even a person of great stature, like a king or head of a clan, can humble themselves when they are in the wrong and try to make it right wherever possible. Son number four was willing to do that at least. In doing so, established the kingly line a line that led to David and then to some guy named Jesus. I think I'll stop here and leave you with that thought. I'm planning on doing a follow-up on Tamar in another episode. That one will also qualify as one of those strange stories. Thanks for hearing me.